0: Very dramatic, with the lights down and all that. Sorry, Chris, you're a little shorter than me. I'm going to duck down here a little bit. Um, Thank you guys all for joining us today uh, here. Um, Today we're going to hear from our friend uh, and colleague, Chris Corpus, a lecture entitled Land of the Blue Sky, How Mongolia's Conservation Efforts Can Inform Ocean Conservation. Um, I'm Dave, Dave Bader, I'm the Director of Education at the Aquarium of the Pacific, my pronouns are he, him, his. And before we get started, I'd like to let everybody know to turn off uh, or silence their cell phones, other mobile devices, and refrain from texting during the pr- uh, presentation. We'd appreciate it. Um, if you're going to do it, just make sure to distract Chris um, with anything. You can send him texts, I think this is his phone right here. Um, <laughs> anyhow. Uh, we also want to thank uh, the Gazette Newspapers and Courtyard Marriott because their support is what makes uh, lectures like this possible for all of you guys tonight. I uh, also remind you tonight that we are streaming this live um, and there are people that will be watching this. We also archive every lecture, um, so if you uh, know of people who you think should have seen Chris come speak, you can always forward the link off to them um, to hear the archives and then search our archives for more lectures. Um, tonight, uh, Chris is our esteemed aquarium filmmaker, and he's going to share some stories from his studies uh, with endangered species in the Mongolian steppe um, and what Mongolian conservation efforts can reveal about ocean conservation. Corpus is the aquarium's audiovisual uh, production manager. In his role, he produces the aquarium's web series, short films, and documentaries. Is an active member of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums as well, representing the Aquarium of the Pacific on several committees and conservation projects, including the Volunteer Management Committee and the Florida Reef Track Rescue Project. Corpus is a graduate student in biology at Miami University with a focus on conservation biology. His studies focus on perceptions of conservation and how storytellers can better communicate about conservation work. It is my pleasure to welcome Chris Corpus. Well, thank
1: you, Dave, for that introduction that I may have helped write. Ah, oh, my Toastmasters are out there in the crowd. Thank you all for being here tonight as well. There are a lot more of you here than I was expecting, so that's a little intimidating. Uh, but I'm glad to have you here. I also uh, want to thank Jerry Schubel and Linda Brown for uh, inviting me to have this talk today. And I also want to say hi, Mom, hi, Dad. I know you're watching online. So, here we go, whoop, too fast. A land of the blue sky. Um, as Dave said, I am a graduate student at Miami University, and uh, as a master's student, I got to travel all over the world in this program to get to learn about conservation efforts in um, different parts of our world, and get to meet the researchers who are doing some of the heavy lifting and heavy conservation work out there. Tonight, uh, I have been inspired, actually, to do all this. I do want make sure I mention the people who led me into this path. Uh, We have several folks here at the Aquarium of the Pacific who have started this program. And we have Alicia Archer, who graduated in 2014, and Angelina Komadovich here in the front, who graduated in 2018. And it was by seeing how their voices for conservation started to change that really inspired me to want to join this program and see what I could do to help communicate conservation efforts a little bit better myself. Mongolia is where I went this summer. It was a fascinating, beautiful place. Um, but in other places, uh, I got to travel, included Peru with Angelina, where we studied the Amazon rainforest and tropical ecology there. And then we, uh, or I went to Belize on another trip and got to study coral uh, restoration and uh, manatee research, which was really exciting to learn about. But in Mongolia, Mongolia is an interesting place because it is an ecosystem, or it's full of ecosystems that are extreme ecosystems. And when you have extreme ecosystems, small changes in those ecosystems have big, rippling impacts. And uh, those changes often are happening because of humans, because of our impact both in climate and on the land, and the water around is what's causing changes in those ecosystems. We studied a whole lot of animals out there, and I wish I could talk about all of them, but this would keep you here probably all night. And so instead, I chose a couple that I wanted to share with you, uh, these two. The palace cat, or the manuel, there on the, lo- on the right, and the taki, or the Shavalski's horse, here on the left. Uh, I chose these two because they really help uh, focus um, your attention on the type of impacts that humans are having in those environments, both positively and negatively. Uh, and it's important to recognize both of those things, I think. But to really understand those two species, and really all the species, that are being affected in Mongolia, you have to know a little bit more about the culture and the history uh, of their country. And so, I'll give you a little glimpse of that. Some of you in the room might not know exactly where Mongolia is. No shame in that game, because uh, several of my friends did not know that either until I showed them this on the map. So, uh, let's take a look. There we go. So Mongolia is a landlocked country. It is uh, in northern Asia. You can see it up there towards the top. Uh, It has two borders, one with Russia in the north, and on the west, south, and east, you've got China surrounding it, which also makes it uh, a very important country on the international um, economy and on the international scale, because uh, it's a country that is full of resources, of natural resources, And as its uh, government has changed and its its economy has changed it's uh, rapidly growing and becoming an important part of the Asian economy and and soon will be affecting our economy over here in the United States as well. So I believe that you'll hear more and more about Mongolia in the future. It's good to start learning about it now. If we zoom in a little bit closer uh, you can see more of this country. It's about the size of Alaska and uh, its population is Not huge, it's about three million people who live there, but the thing that was really surprising to me is that half of the population lives in one city. Uh, This city, Ulaanbaatar, right here, is where 1.5 million people live, Um, which isn't a huge number to those of us here in Los Angeles because we have several more million than that, but for this country to have half their population in one city is a big deal. So if half the people are there, where's everybody else? There are lots of little small towns all around where people are doing various types of work, but the majority of the people outside of the city are herders. They are part of a nomadic herding community that lives spread out across the country and and travel and move around quite a bit, and we'll talk a little bit more about them in a moment. The country itself, let's take another look at it so you can see kind of what the landscape is like, and you see a lot of brown there. Um, When I was talking about extreme ecosystems, one of those is the desert, this uh, country, The Gobi Desert, which is uh, in China, stretches up into Mongolia as well, and it's one of the largest deserts in the world, and it is growing uh, at a rapid pace right now as desertification is happening in Mongolia. Up towards the north there are lots of mountains, and that's where the Rocky Steppe ecosystem is, and kind of in between the Rocky Steppe and the desert are lots of grassland, and that's what I originally pictured, the grassland steppe of Mongolia, when I learned I was getting to go there. I pictured, you know, kind of like the Wild West, waving, grass, horses running through it, a really picturesque scene, but what I ended up discovering when I first got there was this. This was what our campsite looked like for the first part of our travels in Mongolia. Um, It could look like this, and it used to look like that, but in its current state, it looked like this, and that was mainly due to overgrazing. Overgrazing is the biggest problem facing Mongolia right now. It's affecting their economy, and it's affecting their ecosystems. Um, It looks like Mars, and the only reason I know it's not is because down here is lots of poop (laughs) from sheep, goat, and, uh, and cattle that travel through the area. Overgrazing is a big problem, like I said, and it's happening because of these guys. Uh, One example here are the goats and sheep that many of the herders have um, started using uh, for food, for finances, and just for their culture living on the steppe. Other species that are being herded include horses, cattle, camels, yak, um, but mostly sheep and goats. That's the big one that we see out there. Uh, That's kind of an important thing to recognize because sheep and goats tend to eat grass different than other animals do. They eat it all the way down to the roots of the plant, and that means that the grass can't grow back. And that's when you start to see that desert starting to form because the grass is losing its footing uh, and can't continue to grow. Why are there so many goats, you ask? Well, uh, one of the main exports out of Mongolia is cashmere, which come from goats like these. Uh, One-third of the world's cashmere comes out of Mongolia, and that means probably most of the scarves or uh, shirts or things that you might have made out of cashmere probably came from cashmere here in Mongolia. This country didn't always have so many herds going across it and uh, overgrazing. It used to be a very different uh, economy there. The country was a communist country for... Uh, most of the 1900s, and it really wasn't until the late 1980s that it started to shift, and in 1990 it became a democratic country. Um, When it became a... I'll show you. Here's a little video of what it looks like a couple days after some goats and sheep have gone through and grazed through um, what was previously a very tall grassland. You can see kind of hard to see over here, but there are some patches of grass that are a little bit taller, but the majority of grass that you're seeing down here is only about an inch tall, maybe less. So, the Mongolian economy, or the government I should say, was a communist government for a long, long time, which meant that the government owned everything, which included all of the livestock that they had. Um, The herders were allowed to work the livestock, but they did not actually own it, so because of that regulation, they kept the population of livestock down to about the sustainable amount that the land could hold, which is about 25 million head of livestock, 25 million individuals. After the government changed and restrictions were lifted, uh, people started making more money off of those herds. They were doing the cashmere, they were selling meat, they were selling milk, and because of that, they started to increase the sizes of their herds, doubling and tripling the sizes of the herds, uh, up to the point that there are now about 66 million Uh, head of livestock in the country, which is double, almost triple, what the land can actually hold. And that's why we start to see overgrazing like this as they go through just mowing down uh, the ecosystem, which then of course affects so many different animals, some of which we'll talk about tonight. Uh, Another problem with overgrazing and the desertification that's happening is it doesn't just affect summertime, it affects winter as well. Um, As climate is changing, and it is changing drastically in Mongolia, uh, they are experiencing temperature increase there at twice what the rest of the world is experiencing. So uh, they're experiencing warmer summers dramatically, and they're also experiencing much more dramatically cold and harsh winters. Um, They have these huge winter storms that you could I would compare it to like a hurricane and a polar vortex, all coming together as one and traveling across the country. You saw that devastation in uh, the Bahamas from Hurricane Dorian recently. Imagine that on land at a great scale in the wintertime, and that's what's happening here. Uh, they'll have, when there's overgrazing, there's not enough grass to grow that is still there in the wintertime for the herds to eat in the winter. So the herds then um, aren't They don't have enough fat in their bodies to be able to survive in that cold, and when it gets down to negative 40 Fahrenheit, they can freeze where they stand sometimes. And uh, when these zeds happen, when these extreme winter storms happen, uh, it devastates not only the herders, because that's their livelihood, but then extends on out through the whole economy and can really wreck the economy of the entire nation. Uh, Because it's happening on such a grand scale, I wanted to show you this uh, graph from NPR. Uh, In 1999 through uh, the winter of 2002, there were three different zeds that happened, almost all in a row, uh, for each winter. And in that time period, 11.2 million livestock were lost, freezing and starving in that winter time. Um, The herders tried to recover from that. They bought more animals. They tried to plan ahead for the next big winter storm. It didn't happen for a couple of years people got more relaxed and then a major one happened again in 2010 where 10.3 million head of livestock all froze or starved inside that storm. Uh, Again, devastating the livelihood of people out there and devastating the economy. And all a part of the climate change that they're experiencing there. It's changing the way that they handle things there now instead of just sort of tending to the animals season by season. They're having to prepare really heavily in spring and summer and fall to be prepared for these harsh winters that are coming along. Um, And These harsh winters don't just affect the herders, but it's also affecting the wildlife that's out there as well. So let's talk a little bit about the wildlife, because that's really why you're here, not for harsh winter storms. The first one I want to talk about is the most adorable grumpy cat you've ever seen. This is the palace's cat, or uh, the Manul, which is how, what the Mongolians call them. They are a type of wildcat, a very small wildcat, that's found in Mongolia. And you may have seen them on the internet before. Uh, this is a video, we'll let play out, uh, that made them very, very popular on the internet uh, a couple of years ago. as you can see. Uh, okay, duck down. I'm going to keep talking. So palace cats are uh, a really interesting species because they're... Uh... Thank you. <laughs> I'll show you another video actually as I tell you a little bit of the life history of the palace cat. Uh, these are some kittens that the researcher Munsog Irbis uh, recorded uh, in 2016. Uh, one of the litters of kittens that were found there but I wanted to give you a couple of facts about palace cats. So they live in those cold, arid uh, ecosystems along the rocky steppe. Um, you can see they're kind of that grayish-brownish color, so they blend in really well with the rocky areas there. They have the longest and densest fur of any cat in the world, which means they were heavily hunted for a long time. Uh, at one point, about 50,000 a year were being caught for the fur trade. Uh, That became illegal and now they are protected species from hunting Uh, but there's still only about 15,000 of them left in the world which puts them on the endangered species list as near threatened but um, there is research happening right now to try and determine if they're actually more threatened than that uh, and if more efforts need to be done to help protect them. They uh, are an ambush hunter. You can see they don't really run very well. <laughs> they kind of scoot along the ground, they stay low to the ground to uh, surprise their prey. Most of their prey are rodents. They are a big um, part of controlling the rodent population in Mongolia. They like the small ones, like pika, gerbils, mice. Um, they also eat small birds from time to time, but those are the, the rodents are the main thing that they go after. Um, I mentioned that they are uh, a dwindling species that their numbers are continuing to drop right now. One of the good things to hear about uh, what we're trying to do for them is that the Association of Zoos and Aquariums has a species survival plan for these guys, which means uh, there's an effort, a joint effort, among several zoos to make sure that we have breeding populations of these guys that are healthy, that we could use to um, do reintroduction uh, programs for them if we needed to, and also just to make sure that we don't lose them entirely. They're very, very cute. There are three males and two females in that one right there, in case you're interested in that. But this is what it looks like. Uh, You can see that it is uh, quite a rocky ecosystem there. This is actually right next to the camp that we were in. If i point up there. There's the Gare camp we were at. Gares are kind of a tent-like structure. And that's where we stayed through um, most of our time here on this arid landscape. And this is actually where I saw my first palace cat ever, um, but unfortunately, I saw him dead. Uh, they are very difficult to find, and it was really sad to know that the very first one I found was one that had passed away, and the reason for that was because of poisoning. Um, the rodents that are in this ecosystem are there by the thousands. Uh, my classmate Stephanie's in the audience. I bet you she would agree that we saw thousands upon thousands of them out there. Um, Digging holes. All the rodents live in small dens in the ground, and so they dig lots of holes in the ground. Because of that, uh, those holes become trip hazards for all the livestock that goes through, and if a livestock animal trips, breaks its leg in something, one of those holes, the herder really has no choice but to put the animal down. They don't have the capacity to help those animals heal and get back to normal. So uh, the herders really hate the rodents because of the holes in the ground, so they try to poison the rodents. Well, those rodents get poisoned, the predators, like the palace cats, um, they'll hunt for something if they have to but if they find one that's already dead in the ground, they'll eat that one uh, and they tend to get poisoned as well because of that. And That's a big part of the loss of palace cats is all the poisoning uh, that's happening from the herders out there. Here's another view of what the landscape looks like um, where we are trying to find palace cats. Uh, I mentioned they're tough to find. We had three different groups of students that were looking for them when we were out there. Um, two of us found them. One of our group, uh, one group did not, sadly. Um, but I was in the lucky group <laughs> that got to find them. I don't know if you can see the palace cat in this picture, but this might give you an example of why it's so difficult to find them. This is blown up really large, so it's probably a little bit easier for you guys. But The palace cat is right here, right there in the middle. They blend in really well, right? You could literally trip over them um, without seeing it. And that is how we found our our first live palace cat. (laughs) Uh, This is a female. She was in a small den. Um, One of my classmates had been walking through and then heard a hiss to her left, looked down, and saw a palace cat in the den. So we came over, got some pictures, Trying to see what we could uh, from her, but didn't want to bother her too much. You can see that she wasn't too affected by us uh, sitting there. One interesting thing about palace cats is their eyes are different from other cats. You see, they've got those round pupils. Most cats have the slit for pupils in their eyes. Um, it helps th- these guys see really well in the dark. They do a lot of hunting in the evenings. Uh, very cute animal. But she didn't want to come out, so we set up some. Um, camera traps to try and spot them and see what they're doing. And here is a couple of videos of what we saw after we left. So there is the female right here, and she had two kittens with her, which was really exciting to see. Uh, You'll see them bounce through. There's one of them, and there's another one running around somewhere. Let's skip to the next video. Uh, Another Little factoid about them is if you look at their ears, they're a little bit lower set and a little off to the side. It gives their head a little more of a rounded shape, which helps them blend in with the rocks and look more like the rock work around them. Uh, It also helps give them that grumpy look on their face. (laughs) I think, yeah, there's one. I feel like the other one comes out and attacks him in a second. Maybe that. Maybe that was a different video. So what are some of the threats they're facing? See if you can find the palace cat in this picture. They have uh, several things that they're struggling with. Overgrazing, again, is a problem for palace cats, just like it is for the rest of the landscape, because as that overgrazing happens, food for the rodents is starting to disappear, and so then those rodent populations start to decline, which in turn means palace cats have to work harder to find food, and it makes it a little tougher for them. Uh, There's the rodent poisoning that I mentioned. Uh, That's devastating for them. Another one that comes up and is a common theme in conservation efforts is wild domestic animals, so dogs. Uh, Lots of herders have dogs, and so those dogs will go out on their own, meander around. There's no fences in Mongolia, so these dogs can go wherever they want, and sometimes they'll go and hunt palace cats. And then habitat fragmentation, another very common theme in conservation. Habitat fragmentation is when something kind of, splits apart an animal's habitat. So uh, it could be roads, it could be um, communities being built, towns, uh, mines, that's another one in Mongolia that's being built quite a bit. And so as these animals are getting separated from each other, they may start to struggle to find food or they may struggle to find each other. And then they can't breed and continue to grow populations as easily. Those are some of the top uh, issues facing those guys. Um, They don't have as many struggles with uh, those winter storms that I mentioned. Um, because of the thick fur of theirs, they do pretty well in the wintertime. Another cute photo of the kittens. So let's talk more about the horses. This is what was advertised in all the things for this night. This is the Shavalsky's horse, pronounced differently than it looks like it should be. When I first learned about them, I was like, oh, the Przewalsky's horses. Well, no, that's not the correct way. That's uh, a Russian name. And so the original name was spelled in a Cyrillic alphabet, and so when that got translated over it looked a little different uh, and came out that way. I actually like to uh, call them by the name that the Mongolians use, and that's Taki. It's a little bit easier to say, and uh, I like to recognize that not necessarily the name that the Western uh, researcher gave an animal isn't necessarily the name that's closest to what the indigenous population would know them as. So I like to use Taki. Here's a picture of a few of them that we saw when we were out there. Taki are the last wild horse species in the world. And that's a really important thing to know. Um, We know lots of history about them from their bones, but we also know about them through art and uh, cave paintings. And I remember as a kid, I would see these cave paintings and I'd be like, wow, those cave artists are terrible. They do not know how to draw a horse. (laughs) Look at that belly, it's so huge, it's fat, it's round. Look at these short legs, big thick neck, small head. What kind of animal is that? That's not a horse. Turns out that is exactly what a wild horse looks like. These animals have been around for 20 to 30,000 years uh, and they've kept basically the same structure to their bodies throughout that time. You can see that big rounded belly um, it's really wide. If we have a straight-on shot, or if I could find a straight-on shot, you would see you couldn't really easily put a saddle on horses like this. They have really thick, stocky necks, a um, little bit rounder heads, a little bit squatter heads than some of the domestic horses that we know, uh, and they also have backs that would be terrible for being a pack animal. Um, they couldn't support the weight that would be put on them if they were tried to be used as a pack animal like a domestic horse. And I called them the last wild horse species in the world. And when I first heard about them being the last wild horse, my first thought was, well, wait a sec, what about mustangs? What about the wild horses in Australia? What about the wild horses in Africa? Aren't those wild horses? Technically, yes. But those are domestic horses that were able to establish populations in the wild and become a wild species in that way. But true wild horses, Actually, are genetically different. They have different chromosomes than the um, domestic horses that we know. They have uh, what's the number? Forty-two chromosomes. Forty-two? Shoot. <laughs> Forty-two or forty-four? Now I can't remember. Stephanie, do you remember? I'm getting the head shake. Forty-two or forty-four? Don't quote me on it now. Um, and then domestic horses are a forty. I know they're forty-six uh, as far as chromosomes. So it's The number is different, which means that they don't breed well with each other, um, and it means that they are a different species, different things. uh, Their bodies work a little bit differently. Their bodies are built differently. Here is a little video of some of the horses that we found on my birthday, which is really exciting (laughs) because we looked for them the day before, and we didn't find any out there. Oh, no, we found three out there, but we did not find as many as we found on my birthday. We found about almost 60 of them. Um, wandering around that morning, which was really exciting to see. These guys are a great conservation story um, because they went extinct in the wild in 1960. So over the 1900s their population was continuing to drop and in 1960 the last one was seen in the wild and then for 20 years researchers tried to find more of them and did not find a single one. So in the 80s Uh, people started to want to bring them back. Thankfully, in the early 1900s, uh, about 50 foals had been taken to zoos across the world, and uh, 12 of them were able to breed, and so we had a very, very small breeding population of Taki in zoos across the world. And those zoos partnered together and decided, hey, let's see if we can get these animals back into... um, back into their natural environment and that was all spearheaded by their researchers in Mongolia. Um, From the 12, there are now about 2,000 Taki in the world, which is really exciting, Um, and about a third of them are in Mongolia living freely on the plains and in the um, desert ecosystems out there. The Taki live in really interesting groups. Oh, no! AV! This always happens to me. When I work in AV, the AV crashes on me. That's all right. I'll keep telling you a little bit about them. So uh, they live in small groups, typically two to 20. And in those groups, there's one male and there is several other females. And the dominant um, horse in that group is always a female. There are female-led groups with one male in them. But, but the males, males are very, very, very protective of those groups, of groups that are called harems. And, and the running joke when we were uh, in Mongolia was that, that I was the only male in our group, group of students there, there, so we had, had our style. own little harem. Nothing, Nothing happened. Don't worry, everybody. Uh, so, so when the stallions um, lose a harem, because, because there's often battles for these camps. harems, um, uh, they're, they're very violent, they're violent very and they're very bloody. It's more like a lion fighting for uh, a pride. So they'll literally try to rip each each other's faces off. And there were were photos that we had found of them um, with with huge gashes and deep marks down to the bone across across their faces uh, from the battles that they they had 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 to try and and win over uh, a harem. And And if a a stallion stallion loses a harem, they don't just give up. They'll continue continue coming back over and over and over to try and get that harem back until they maybe get too old or too injured to be able to continue fighting. At that point they might go off into what's called a bachelor group, which is sometimes about three, maybe five males uh, in a group that are traveling um, through the park. So the let's see if it plays this time. There we go. So the reintroduction project started in 1991 the year after they became a democratic country, which helped support them getting to do this. The local community there was Very supportive of this. The Taki were uh, a part of their mythology. It was a part of their culture, the horse culture there. Uh, Mongolians have always been known as the people who rode across the steppe on their horses and they battled from their horses and they lived from their horses. That was a big part of their lifestyle. So they were able to build enough support in. this one section of Mongolia where they were able to build a national park. And they didn't just build a national park that would be a blocked off piece of land that nobody could go into, that couldn't be used by anybody except the horses. They built it to have a protected area within it, like that, but the surrounding area was built to be um, what's called a buffer zone. Um, let's see, I need to click ahead a little bit to catch up. Here's some more of the, this is one of or that was one of the mayors. Um, with her little foal there, very, very cute. So, Hustai National Park was built to, for the main purpose of protecting these wild horses and giving them the opportunity to try and develop a population there. Here is what it looks like. It is uh, about 50,000 hectares of land. So I read that and I was like, all right, well how do I describe what 50,000 hectares are? A hectare is about the size of a football field. I can't envision, 50,000 football fields, so looked up, with square miles. about 190-ish square miles. Okay, well, that's still a weird number. But I figured out that Long Beach is about 60 square miles, so you're looking at about three Long Beaches here. You can use that as a metric of measure now. And in these three Long Beaches, they were able to set aside some land all kind of along in here that would be protected land that would be just used for ecotourism and for allowing uh, the land to grow back and for those uh, reintroduced animals to try and develop a strong population. Along the border of the national park, they built a buffer zone that extended out and the purpose of that buffer zone was to allow the local community to also use the land for their livelihoods. Um, Because it was a managed area, it wasn't overgrazed, so So then herders were able to use some of that buffer buffer zone, zone. and And if if really really bad bad winters come along, they're they're allowed allowed to move deeper deeper into the park to to use some some of that grazing grazing land land as well if they they need to. Uh, So that helped them get some buy-in from the local community. They also really worked hard to establish ecotourism, like I mentioned, which gave some jobs to the local people who lived in that area, and they were able to find ways to support themselves in that. They hired all of their park rangers from the local community, people who already knew the land, people who knew the animals and wanted to help protect them and teach people about them. Um, And these efforts were really, really successful because they now have about 330 or so uh, wild horses, horses there in the, in the park. park, and, and um, they're working on getting that up to a minimum of 500 in the national park, which is what they think the minimum carrying capacity would be for wild horses in there. The cool thing that started to happen from this, though, was that not just the wild horses were doing well and um, repopulating, but that other animals started to come back into this. It became an ecosystem-wide effort. Uh, we saw red deer come back, and their populations started to explode in the area. Um, Wolves were coming back in because they had prey that they could go after in the area. They saw uh, other species that had long disappeared from the area starting to come back. Things like Mongolian gazelle were traveling through um, and making their way in between Russia and and, and lower parts of Mongolia. So a lot of animals were getting the benefit of this protected area. It wasn't just the, the wild horses, though they were the signature species that this effort was aimed at. Several other animals and people were able to benefit from it as well. The issues that the horses are facing now, overgrazing can still be an issue around the park in that buffer zone, and even sometimes herders will try and push their animals into the park to get some food um, if they can, but the rangers try to move them outside to the buffer zone. Uh, Climate change is is happening, and they're seeing the birch forests within the park um, shrinking, and so that's affecting the red deer population, which means there's more competition with the red deer for some of the food sources there. There's also herds of domestic horses that tend to travel into the park that the rangers have to herd out, uh, and they're competing for the water and food sources. And then there's those winter storms. Schawalski's horses, Taki, are interesting because when they find a resource, the water and food that they need, they don't leave that area. They tend to stay exactly in that area. So. Even if the rangers try to move the animals outside of the park, because there's no fences, again, they can move out of the park and populate other areas. When they push those animals out, they always come back to that river and to the food source that they know. And when these zuds happen, when these extreme winter storms happen, other animals like the red deer, uh, like the gazelle, will move out of the park and will move to areas that um, have protection from the elements, or have more food sources, have more water that they can uh, reach, where the Takis stay there, and so they struggle in these winter storms because they're not moving away and they're not going to protect themselves, and they've lost populations of Takis in some of those winter storms. (laughs) Excuse me. Oh, and this is another video of the little foal. You can also see their mane is very much like a zebra. It's a very... um, straight short mane that stands up straight versus kind of flopping to the side. Uh, These horses are actually starting to move around. Like You you can see them talking to each other and they're giving each other warning signals. Uh, And it's not because of us. They actually heard the rangers coming down uh, the mountainside on their motorcycles and they immediately started building kind of this protective group and then moving away from the rangers. I think because they're used to the rangers trying to move them to different areas. So um, they get a little agitated when they see the rangers coming. We had sound on this at one point. It's really cool because you can hear the thundering of their hooves. Um, find it on the internet later. It's a really cool video. <laughs> All right. So what does that mean for us in an aquarium? Like why am I talking about horses here at the Aquarium of the Pacific? One of the things that I started learning and realizing going through this Project Dragonfly program and working on different conservation efforts with people like Dave Bader, uh, trying to help the Vaquita Safe program to help those, the most endangered marine mammal in the world up there, the Vaquita. Uh, I also have had the opportunity to work, like Dave said earlier, on the Florida Reef Track Rescue Group. In Florida there, uh, about 90% of the stony corals along the barrier reef are affected by a disease that we don't understand, and it's killing all those corals, and we're losing the reef very rapidly. And if we lose that reef, we lose the home for the fish, and that in turn will uh, affect the ecosystem there and affect the economy of Florida. And so the Association of Zoos and Aquariums has built this Florida Reef Tract Rescue Group, it's a very weird name, Florida Reef Tract Rescue Group, to try and come up with a plan to save that reef and try to rescue some of those corals, establish them in zoos and aquariums, and hopefully figure out the disease and then repopulate the reef with the healthy corals that we take out. So what can we learn about all of this and what have I learned working in groups like this? Is that conservation efforts across the globe are kind of the same. Everywhere you go, um, when you're trying to work on a conservation effort, you're seeing the same things popping up or very similar issues popping up. I talked about overgrazing quite a bit tonight. That can be really similar to overfishing in the oceans where we're taking out uh, a resource that's needed by uh, all of the animals in that ecosystem and by us as well. Um, I talked about poisoning and trapping that was happening on the rodents and was affecting the palace cats. Well, a similar thing is happening in the Gulf of California with gill nets that are set to cap- capture a fish called the totoaba, but it's also capturing sea turtles and sharks, uh, dolphins and the vaquita, the most endangered marine mammal. Very similar issues, how do we fix and work on those issues? Climate change, Uh, water temperatures are changing, ocean acidification is happening. On land, those temperatures are changing, the storms are changing, the summers are changing. How do we fix some of those problems? How do we fix habitat fragmentation? Um, how do we raise public awareness? That was a big one that I've been thinking a lot about as a communicator, is how do we raise public awareness for things like coral in the Florida reef track? Uh, it's hard to talk about something that's undersea it's not very charismatic. It looks like a rock. It looks like a plant. How do you get people to care about something like that? And what I saw in Mongolia uh, were kind of a couple big takeaways for me and what things I would like to try and do in ocean conservation and I would like to see happening more and more in ocean conservation. Uh, One of those is avoiding what's called conservation colonialism. In a lot of conservation efforts, so first, I talked about the Taki and the effort that was made by the Mongolians to really work with the local community, work with their people, get the, the folks around where these animals need to be involved and get them to be a part of this. Uh, that doesn't happen across the world and it hasn't happened historically in conservation period. Uh, a lot of conservation efforts have been focused solely on the animals and people have been lost and pushed out through a lot of the conservation efforts that have been happened in Africa, for example, or South America and in Asia, uh, in Europe and here in North America as well. Uh, Conservation colonialism, where we somewhere else have this great idea, we have this animal we really care about, we have this ecosystem that we really care about, uh, and we want to help it, and we have all these best intentions in the world, but we don't take into account the people who are already there, the people who know the land, the people who know the water, know the life cycle there, Um, and when those people aren't included, they're often forced out and completely unincluded, and sometimes our conservation efforts don't work. Sometimes. We try, we try, we try, and we fail, and we give up, and we can walk away without a problem. But the folks who lived there, the folks who were forced out, the folks whose cultures had to change because of uh, conservation effort, they don't get that luxury. They're still suffering from the effects of it. And so we really have to think about humans as a part of the ecosystem and making sure that we take into account the social side of conservation in order to save the natural side of conservation. And part of what we saw in the Taki restoration effort was the National Park sharing that land, that buffer zone, making sure that they're including those local people, like I said, they're making partnerships. Um, They also, you know, they're working with the local people, but they're also extending out globally. Um, Herding co-ops have been made amongst the herders in Mongolia so that they can identify the areas that are being overgrazed, and they can make planning, or make plans to, move around a bit differently so that they're not all overgrazing in the same areas, so that areas are allowed to grow back. And um, they can figure that out through things like satellite imagery. NASA is actually a partner with some of these co-ops providing satellite images of what the landscape is like on an up uh, on a now basis. So they can see exactly what's happening in their regions and be able to plan ahead to um, avoid the overgrazing. And then The one that stood out to me was the branding of national species, of that ownership of the Taki, that that is their animal, and that is something that they love, it's part of their history and they want to protect. They're working on that with the palace cat as well, but you remember how hard they are to find? A lot of herders don't believe they exist. They say, oh well, we've never seen one, I'm just going to keep using poison, I'm not worried about it, it's not hurting anything, I don't see it. So they're having to figure out how can they brand the palace cat as a Mongolian. Um, species as well. And I think about this in terms of for Mexico with the vaquita, and for us in the United States with the Florida Reef. That's our reef. It's a big great barrier reef. Um, and It protects Florida. It protects part of the Gulf of Mexico there. And it's something that we should be proud of that we have an ecosystem like that and that we want to protect too. So how can we brand something like that as our United States reef? Interesting ideas that I hope we can take away and utilize in conservation efforts. There's so much to talk about with Mongolia and the efforts that they do there. Um, I mentioned two endangered species, but we worked with at least uh, 6 to 12 different endangered species that we learned about while we were there. Um, I highly recommend, if you're interested in learning more about Mongolia, to check out NPR. They've done a lot of incredible research and storytelling recently. Uh, you go to NPR.org Mongolia, and you can hear some amazing radio stories and see a lot of beautiful images of Ulaanbaatar and the countryside there. And then Project Dragonfly, of course, is a wonderful program, ProjectDragonfly.org, and then there's all my contact info on the side, too, if you want to ask me any questions. Um, it's a big deal to be involved in conservation, and it takes a lot of people to do it. Uh, And it takes a lot of heart to do it. And sometimes people outside of the group that's in this room might not realize it. Um, But getting to be a storyteller and getting the opportunity to talk to people like you and hopefully all band together to talk about conservation and what we can do to protect species and save animals from extinction is a big deal. And I hope we can do it together. Thank you.
0: We have time for questions now. We have um, Adina is off on the, that side, I'm on this side. And remember, we have our, our at-home audience as well. So we have the microphones, we'll pass those out. If you have any questions for Chris, now's the time to ask them. In the back. We turn up the lights, you guys can hear in the back. Yay.
2: Hello. What an awesome presentation I learned quite a bit. Um, I was thinking about the poisoning that's going on with rodents. Have they tried something to um, stop it or decrease it? Because I think something needs to be done because if something's not done, uh, not only the rodent's gonna end up poisoned, but there's potential for other um, species of different species. natures to be poisoned as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Um, you know, palace cats I mentioned, but there's also lots of birds who eat those rodents as well. So those animals all uh, are affected by the poison. There are some efforts within the government and within the herding co-ops to try and reduce uh, the use of poisons. They're still trying to convince people that it's worthwhile. That's the hardest part. Um, The herders like anybody, are most concerned about about making sure they can feed their families, families, making making sure that their livelihood can continue. And And so um, if if they they don't really see the value in doing something differently, then they're probably not going to. So the effort right now is to really try and help them see how the palace cats, for example, can help reduce the rodent population versus them having to use poisons, which kill the palace
3: cats. Um,
2: I'm working on a project and we actually think because people aren't doing what they need to do of considering issuing citations and fines. So do you think if the government gets more involved or some entity gets involved and has issuance of some type of citation or fine to the persons that's doing this, it might help to decrease this problem?
1: I, I don't know if I can say a good answer to that as an expert. Um, I don't know a lot about citations and fines. I do know that a lot of conservation um, efforts talk about working with governments to try and increase fines and make sure that um, laws are being upheld. I think that's one of the hardest parts, that a government can pass a law, but if the police, if the local community isn't helping to enforce that law, then um, it's sort of a wasted effort. I also think Sometimes trying to control people with negative impacts don't work as well as trying to guide them with positive impacts. I think there's a longer lasting result from uh, supporting the good things that people can do and kind of showing them the, the, the results of a positive or a good effort versus trying to completely lock them down and stop them from something.
2: But there is probably some
1: value in that. Again, I'm not an expert on that. But uh, it's something that a lot of people are considering. I will definitely say. say. I hope I answered that right.
0: <laughs> Additional
3: questions?
2: When you were talking about the sort of revival of the Taki population coming from populations from zoos, mm-hmm. you said it was in like the like in the early 1900s that they
1: Yeah, so the horses were collected in like the early to mid-1900s without the idea that they were protecting a species.
2: That's what I was going to ask. Was it like part of an early equivalent of like an SSP or was it just sort of coincidental that they had a successful population that they were able to reintroduce?
1: I think it was mostly coincidental. So they were trying to build a menagerie at different zoos and finding animals, um, but As they started to realize that the horses were disappearing, then people had to figure out, well, how can we help make sure there are more of those animals? And so that's when the the change started to happen in the 50s. And then with the extinction in the wild, that's when they really realized, oh, gosh, what do we do now? That's so cool. (laughs) Well, it's such a great story for conservation in general, right? Like, how many different species do we hear about that are dying off? Like the vaquita, there may be a 10 right now. It's about the same number as taki, right? It could work, we could help bring them back. Whooping cranes are another uh, story where it was down to the 20s and we were able to bring them back to the, uh, at least 800-ish? I don't remember exactly how many of those there are, but it can work.
0: I think, uh, just if I can add to that, we wait too long um, and too often wait too long. We shouldn't be waiting until there's nine left. Yeah. Uh, in order to step up to do something we need to be doing something when there's a thousand left ten thousand left so we can learn about the biology because often you know we're talking about the success stories uh, but often like with the vaquita um, we can't bring them into captive care um, they their biology's not going to handle that and so we've lost that opportunity so we need to know these things way longer before it becomes so critical additional questions for Chris yeah
3: As uh, elementary teachers in training, uh, what advice do you give uh, to us to tell our students? Like, what can we do in order to, like, tell our, like, any advice you would give towards students in general?
1: Boy. I kind of want to lean over to my compadre here, but I won't make her talk. Uh, Some of the people that I traveled with were teachers, and they would probably be much more enabled to answer this question, but I think... (laughs) We'll see, we'll see if she says anything. It's okay if she doesn't. Um, for me, connecting the heart is a big part of things. Um, helping people really see why other people care can sometimes help more people care. But Maybe Stephanie could add to that.
3: Um, hello. So I teach high school students. So it's a little bit different, but I do have an 8-year-old. Um, and I find that just with my 8-year-old, just telling him the truth, um, and not trying to like gloss over and um, like always show the positive side of things. Um, so we're actually reading. My son and I are reading a book right now about all these like really good, um, great, great conservation, conservation stories. stories. And so, so then, then he'll ask questions, questions and I just try to, try to tell, tell him the, the truth. Like um, one, one of them was about the red wolf, and he's like, like well, "Well, why did it disappear?" And so we talked about you know the persecution against wolves in general because of you know they're deemed the bad species and. You know, know um, hunting, hunting them and things, things like that so, so I, think I think just, just you know, know being honest with, with your students whatever age
1: thanks so.
0: i jump in chris real quick yeah i think we- also um, conservation is about human behavior change right so there's always a human element to uh, any conservation story there's only a human element to every conservation story and so at an earliest stages as we can or whenever we frame our conservation stories, we need to talk about it in terms of the people um, that are impacted the stakeholders. So if it's you know, red wolves, we need to talk about um, you know, why are there so few red wolves and what can we do uh, about the human side of why there are so few red wolves. Um, and you know, building fences, as, as Chris has said, is, is not necessarily the way to go about saving things. It's about working with the people. Um, so what can we do to help them those people, so that they don't have to kill red wolf or whatever the conservation story may be. The more we can integrate people into the story, because we're the problem, but we're also the solution. Um, so changing our behavior is critical, and you know, working towards that. So as as working with elementary school kids, you know, they are integral in conservation. You know, what they do matters, um, and you know, influencing them to think that they have uh, agency. In, in designing, creating the future, uh, I think that would be helpful. More questions?
2: Chris, since you've been all around the world, have you noticed that different cultures might have something to do with the way that they approach conservation? Like why were the Mongolians mm-hmm. so eager to take this up versus maybe in the Amazon where you were?
1: You know, that's a really good question. I, everywhere we've gone where we've seen people doing conservation, everybody involved in it has been so dedicated and passionate, And that hasn't really been different for me, Belize, Amazon, or Mongolia. The people who really care uh, dive in deeply. Um, The effort to get your local community to care as well was done really well in Mongolia. And I think. The, the biggest part of their success with the taki was because horses were such a big part of their, their culture, um, and a big, big part of their, 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 cult, uh, their mythology, and, era, and even and their religion, religion. horses, horses are a big part, were a big part, part of it. In the, in the Amazon, Amazon uh, the forest was, uh, we got, got to meet, meet some indigenous um, people who lived in the Amazon, Amazon and, and I got the sense from them that the, the forest, forest was a part of their life, in uh, a deeper way than, way than like, the, the forest, forest is a part of my life here. Yeah, it was a part, part of their food, it was a part of their protection, it was a part, part of their mythology, uh, um, and, and their kind of the historical, cultural, cultural connection to, to it was um, was deeper, deeper than and ours. That and that probably has something, has something to do with how, how we separate ourselves in Western, Western culture from nature. From nature. We often look at nature as beautiful because people aren't in it. And in some of those places, like... The Amazon, they, Amazon, they look as nature is beautiful, and, and it's a part, part of that. them. Wow. So, so I, I think, think that viewpoint really helps get, get people excited to, protect, to help protect something, something and to care, care about, something.
2: about something. Of course, you can.
3: I also was a high school teacher. I want to point out to everybody that something is happening that is incredible right now. Have you heard of the young lady named Greta from Sweden? All right, who sailed across the ocean and her mission is to tell everybody about the importance of climate change and making everyone possible to be a stakeholder in it to try and improve things. And And I think think this is is the important point right here. Allow Allow the kids the chance to discover and explore and use their ideas. We don't want to restrict them to video games. We want them to be thinking outside of the box. And if we we can do that, we are are going to have a lot more success. success. Oh yeah, yeah. you can can hear Greta on YouTube. Lots Lots of different talks, and especially in front of Congress was very interesting because she was joined by several other individuals who were of the the age base from about 15 to 25. So we've we've got got the young people who are being articulate and who are motivated and are are succeeding in motivating others. others.
0: teachers in training that's called wait time we just sit around and wait for someone to ask the question (laughs) in the back
2: now this just came to my mind I think if we show the purpose of why everything's on this earth you know like the Red Wolf for people to see they had a purpose to start with their beginning and how their presence made a difference in the environment and link it all together I think that would really help a lot Except because if you just look at, well, they're no longer here, Mm -hmm. I think people would really have a heart and take the value of them and their purpose and that might help escalate making a positive difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Everything has a niche. Everything has
2: a part part to to play play in
1: the ecosystem. That's why it's in the ecosystem. Um, Yeah, trying to make sure we protect it and keep it. It's good.
0: Very cool. Cool. Any more questions? All right, thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, guys.